Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, you made a great choice to start 2023 by joining the best podcast of 2023. It's the Engel Angle. I am Fort Worth Star Telegram columnist, Mac Engel. And rather than blather on about any particular topic, I'm going to go straight into my guest for this episode. Uh, my guest today is a professional hero of mine. And it's not every day you get to meet your professional hero. And when you do, sometimes they let you down because you've built them up to be something that they're not. Uh, I'm very happy to say that this person is what you would hope your professional hero would be. I had a chance to interview this person over the phone about 15 years ago, uh, which means I had his phone number. That's a very important lesson, kids. Keep every phone number that you have, especially if you have a podcast and you think you might need a great guest. I met this person, I think back in about 2014 or 15, and I'm very happy to say that, again, he's as genuine and humble uh, as somebody that you want might want to be, especially given all that this person has accomplished. Uh, he's very decent, he's very kind, very gracious, uh, very professional. He is the, he's probably known best, having authored the book The Perfect Storm. Uh, that expression alone became sort of, uh, oh, I don't know, viral, I guess. Uh, the movie went on to become a giant Hollywood production starring George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, and John C. Riley. Uh, however, my guest has done a lot more than that. He is arguably America's foremost war correspondent, who has served as a contributing editor to Vanity Fair and a special correspondent to ABC News. He's covered the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he's quite versed in U.S. Uh, military affairs. He's also a documentary filmmaker whose debut film, Restrepo, which was co-directed by his late friend, Mr. Tim Hetherington, was nominated for an Academy Award in 2010. He has other books out, such as Tribe, and his most recent title, which I cannot recommend strongly enough, Freedom. It is a great thrill for me to introduce the incomparable Mr. Sebastian Younger. Well, you've been... Uh... You know, a professional hero of mine for a long time, and I know that's. I, I yeah, I know. I, I know you probably don't want to hear that, but uh, before I get into questions, I wanted to ask you about Afghanistan or the state of our military. There's one detail about you I, I don't think I ever know, and I've I've interviewed you a couple times before. You've become uh, one of America's foremost war correspondents, and I know how people become like sports writers or political writers or all, but war is a different animal. How did you become a war correspondent? My dad was a refugee from two wars. Um, he grew up in Spain and uh, three, if you count Germany, his father was Jewish. So they left Germany in 1933, the year of the Reichstag fire. I mean, mm -hmm. I think they sort of saw where things were headed. They went to Spain. Uh, they left Spain when, when the fascists came in under Franco in 1936. They went to France. They obviously left France when the Nazis came in a few years later, came to this country. Uh, and uh, I was always curious about war. It really affected my family a lot. And there was a civil war in Bosnia, and I wanted to be a journalist. And I thought, you know, if you go to the most intense place there is, it's probably a shorter trip. It's probably a it might be a professional shortcut to attaining some so a reputation and some good standing in the profession because I didn't have a regular job. I was freelance. 
So off I went to Bosnia and I, um, I, you know, it's, it's weird to say that I, to, to the idea of falling in love with something horrible is, is feels awkward and tasteless to say, but I really fell in love with war reporting. It was the most meaningful, it was the most meaningful thing I'd ever done or could imagine doing. And, um, and I feel like it put me in touch a little bit with my family's, you know, my dad's, uh, my, my dad's past in Europe. So, uh, you know, having read War, I watched Restrepo, I've read your Vanity Fair pieces. Uh, I know you've had close calls. And I know, obviously, your friend Tim Heatherton had yeah. a, died of a tragic situation where yeah. I think, if I understand correctly, you you should have been there. It just so happened to be you weren't there. Um, did you have any moments, Sebastian, in that reporting where, like, I can't, this isn't, this isn't, I, I'm, I'm in the line of fire and I could get killed. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd made my peace with that. Um, I, you know, I think what what tipped me over the over the sort of line into not doing war reporting anymore was a few things. I started to get the feeling that I'd learned all I was going to learn about mm -hmm. myself, about human beings, and about war. And those, though they're all three are things that must be understood as deeply as possible. And so I felt like I, I had done the right thing with my life up until then. But then it came to a point where I thought, I'm just I'm not going to be learning anything new. I'm going to be continuing to incur risk. Like that's, that seems self-indulgent. That seems um, like poor thinking. That seems like a waste. And, and then, uh, and then Tim got killed. And then that sort of convinced me. Um, I watched the effect of Tim's death on all of the people who loved him, you know, including me. And, um, I realized that your life is not your own to live. Your life belongs to all, uh, everyone who will grieve you when you're gone. And that it really is kind of a, a selfish and maybe slightly grandiose thing to go off to war zones, um, at least at age 50, uh, when the people who will pay the price for your death, uh, and it's not you. I mean, once you're dead, your troubles are over and everyone else's troubles have just begun. And uh, and once I realized that when I once I saw war reporting as as um, at least at that stage of my life at age fifty as as uh, being as ignoring other people's concerns, ignoring the the sort of welfare of the people I loved. Once I saw it in that light, like I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And then eventually, I um, I was I was married. That marriage ended. I remarried and I had children. And now, like, forget it. I mean, I don't even. <laughs> yeah. I don't even cross Houston Street. I live in New York City, and I don't even cross Houston Street against against the light, right? I mean, I'm just yeah. like, so uh, my life entirely belongs to my wife and children, and so that you know that part of my life is completely over, and and I'm glad it's over, and I'm just as glad that I, that that's who I was for a while. I taught a college class a number of years ago, and I had in my class is uh, it was a 29 year old veteran of, of Iraq. And he, I think he did two tours there and uh, he was a really quiet man, really interesting guy. And he said, if we went to war with Iran, he would enlist the next day. And I said, why? He said, because nothing makes you feel more alive than yeah. combat. He said, I, I would want to do, the only reason I would do it is, is to be in combat. What is the pull? And I've heard people say that before, not just him, and I'm sure you have. There's something that makes you feel so alive about those situations. I know you didn't, you probably weren't aiming a gun. Did you feel that experience at various points when you're reporting? 
Yeah, very much so. And I, you know, I think it's um, it's easy to think, oh, it's the it's the risk. Uh, you know, it's like running, uh, running a risk of your life that makes you feel alive. And I think there is something to that. But I think it's ignoring that analysis ignores the deeper point, which is running a risk while part of a tight, cohesive group of people that you're willing to to die for. Uh, that's what's intoxicating being um, facing death by yourself is a completely miserable and terrifying affair um what that guy was talking about and what i experienced and many soldiers have experienced is the incredibly powerful solidarity that comes from facing death in a small group with other people and that's intoxicating and that plays directly into our evolu evolutionary past as you know, we are social primates and we survive in the world and we thrive because we form small groups and we form small groups that we are personally willing to die for to defend. And that and that's a uniquely human trait. And uh, and when something feels good, it's evolution's way of getting you getting us to do more of it. It feels incredibly good to do that. And uh, and I think that's what that guy's talking about. We spoke about the first time it was right after the United States killed Osama bin Laden. And you were very optimistic about the United States military presence in Afghanistan. And I think if I remember correctly, you told me a senior military advisor had told you if we had not been in Afghanistan, we would not have been able to, to, to kill bin Laden, if I remember that correctly. But you were really optimistic overall about our presence there and that it could work. Why? You know, I, I just had I, I, I was optimistic because I I hadn't um, it hadn't occurred to me that our civilian leaders are so unbelievably incompetent. Like <laughs> and I. I mean, Sorry, the, mili <laughs> the military does their job and they make mistakes like everybody else. Right. And they can be sort of blinkered in their thinking and whatever. Like, I, um, but they're very good at following orders. And um, unfortunately, um, every administration, both Republican and Democratic, and I'm a Democrat, right? But I'm, I'm very happy to criticize my own. Every single administration involved in the war in Afghanistan and, of course, in Iraq, which was a complete travesty, in my opinion. Um, every administration completely bungled the effort. And so, I like, yeah, I was optimistic because I because I, I had some confidence in our civilian leadership. And, and I realized that it was it was really completely misplaced. Uh, you wrote in a Vanity Fair article that if, I'm going to quote this, if there could be a sure thing in warfare, this was it, and we blew it. Great sentence, by the way. You're referring to the uh, war in Afghanistan. The cynic or war historian looks at what we were trying to do there and says, ah, we were never going to win. This was going to be Vietnam. This is going to be the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Uh, in what way did you think we, how do you think we blew this? Yeah, so let me just say that one of the ways we blew it was invading Iraq, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it sucked off and it, it, it sucked up a huge number of of uh, of soldiers and resources and money and just attention and energy, right? In a war that, my, personally, I'm speaking as a as a as just an individual now. Personally, I believe was was um, not necessary and not merited. And 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 oh, wait, 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 hang on. Which one? One or two? 
the 2003. Okay. Well, we invade. Yeah. So we we invaded. We didn't invade Afghanistan, but we we. Um, I mean, invasion looks a lot different from 15,000 soldiers. I mean, if only we'd invaded Afghanistan, it might have worked, right? But we didn't. We dropped 15,000 soldiers there and marched on to Iraq, which, in my opinion, was a completely unnecessary and unwise choice and and utterly unconnected to 9-11, right? Afghanistan was very connected to 9-11. The people that planned and executed that horror were in Afghanistan, had safe haven in Afghanistan, a... a uh, um, a, ro- a rogue nation that uh, that was uh, unrecognized by almost every country in the world. They would not render Al Qaeda the Al Qaeda leadership to us for justice. And President Bush, who I didn't vote for, but I really respect this about him, he said, "You know, if you don't hand those guys over, we're going to come in and get them. Uh, we prefer that you hand them over, so we don't have to fight a war." And uh, and the Taliban refused to, and so off we went. And so, you know, I've been in Afghanistan in 1996 when the Taliban took over. I'd been there in 2000 with Ahmad Shah Massoud as he was fighting al-Qaeda and the Taliban in the north in Badakhshan. I was there in 2001 when the Northern Alliance uh, took Kabul uh, with our help, obviously. Um, it's a country I'm extremely fond of. And I saw what I saw in 2001 was just just unbelievable gratitude that the United States had ended this endless civil war that was boiling away in Afghanistan and the rest of the world wasn't paying attention. And, you know, people were hugging me in the streets of Kabul because I was an American citizen, like literally saying, thank you for what your country has done for my country. Like, thank you. So what I meant by that, like it's about it being as close to a sure thing as possible, the Taliban were, were a paper tiger. They folded within weeks when they were attacked in 2001 um they there was universal world sympathy for what for the united states and what had happened in new york city and at the pentagon and in pennsylvania uh i mean in iran they were having moments of silence at soccer games because of 9-11 in iran like so i didn't know that yeah so talk about being you know like being the good guy in the fight right the afghans I think overwhelmingly wanted us there because they thought they would put an end to the civil war. And they naively expected that we we would take a sort of sensible plot, a sort of sensible course and um, defeat this Taliban resoundingly and, 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 and fight the thing. I mean, the Taliban came in by promising to end corruption in Afghanistan. And I think it never occurred to the Afghans that when we came in with our hundreds of billions of dollars, that we would actually say to the administration that we put in place, the Karzai administration, that we would actually say to them, you know what, if you guys want to be corrupt, go for it. It's not our problem. <laughs> I don't, the Afghans, it never occurred to them that the United States would do this, right? And so if, you know, if you're going to wage a war you at the, against an enemy, you at very least have to do the, do the things that the enemy was doing that were good. Now, the Taliban were a horrible regime, but at the very least... They dealt very effectively with the corruption that was ruining Afghanistan and ruins much of the developing world, by the way. Mm-hmm. And um, and what I mean, what a strategic error, right? Like, what were you thinking, George Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump, right? What were you thinking that this this core issue for the Afghans that you decide is not important to the war effort and that you know more bombs and bullets will carry the day? Well, of course it won't. Right. So that so when you when you when you stand up an Afghan army and say you have to be willing to die to defend your government, 
when everybody knows that that government is essentially a criminal cartel, a corrupt criminal cartel dedicated to, to enriching itself. Like Afghan soldiers aren't going to die for that. Would you for die for that? I wouldn't die for that. And I don't know why American soldiers were told to die for that. Right. So that's the, to me, that's the central problem. And had there been a sensible policy in place in that regard, we would have had buy-in by the, like real buy-in by the Afghans and it might've worked, but of course it didn't work because it was the raw, it was the, um, we left, we left the most important fact about, Af about Af Afghan society unaddressed. We pulled out in 2021. <clears throat> when in that, in, in our presence there, did you see it turn and think this thing's going to be a disaster? You know, I, I <laughs> excuse me. Um, well, again, I, unfortunately, I don't have a silver, uh, a, a, um, uh, I can't see into the future, right? So a crystal, I don't have a, a crystal ball. Um, so I didn't know, I didn't think it was going to be a disaster necessarily. I thought that we could keep a minimal, that we would possibly keep a minimal troop presence there, um, as we have in other places in the right. world. And, you know, even 5,000 American troops. I mean, the last year or so, there wasn't one American casualty, right? I mean, we had 5,000 troops, something like that, a token force there. It served as a kind of tripwire against the Taliban taking over. You know, I just, it, it, you know, I just assumed that there would be something like that um, that would be in place for the foreseeable future. And I did not anticipate until it happened that there would be a complete withdrawal that would happen that suddenly. Like, it just, I, I didn't see it coming. So once that started to happen and people, you know, people in the media and the generals and the politicians were saying, oh, no, no, the Afghan army's got this. You know, they're not, <laughs> uh, like, no, they do not have this. What are you talking about? It's going to, I mean, at that point, I was like, no, it's going to completely collapse. And, you know, when you hear stories about the uh, Ghani, the, the Afghan president fleeing, with two helicopters filled with cash, totaling something like $40 million. Like when you hear that little tidbit, you think, no, the Taliban are going to take, are going to take Kabul in a day. Like, I mean, it's a completely corrupt enterprise. I mean, Ghani should have stayed and fought. I mean, that, that money should have gone to his soldiers. I mean, good God. Like, uh, I mean, with leaders like that, you're, not, you're never going to win a war. So I have this theory. I want to see, uh, see what you think. So if we pulled out in 2021, I thought this was a calculated political decision on the part of the Biden administration, that he was determined to end our military presence there, and that if he did it early enough in his term, in his tenure, that by midterms and certainly the next presidential election, people would forget about it, or it wouldn't nearly hurt them as much if he did it right next to it. Right. Agree or disagree? I mean, look, I'm not a politician or, a, you know, what an analyst, but I, I think that sounds pretty reasonable. Yeah. I mean, and Biden was always against the war. And um, I don't know what his alternative to the war after 9-11, what his alternative to the war would have been. But uh, he was always against it. And so I, I think you're probably right. Yeah. He was trying to insulate himself from the consequences. And I, you know, now it seems like old news. I mean, except to the people involved. Right. But politically speaking, it's sort of old news. In a sense, he was right. Um, is it fair to say that this was a modern, I don't know if modern works. Are there endless parallels between what we did in Afghanistan and what we tried to do in Vietnam? Or are they different animals? Because they look the same. 
Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I don't, I haven't studied Vietnam and I don't know how close the parallels are. I don't know how much support we had uh, among the Vietnamese when we went in. Um, it was also, Vietnam was also started on a lie. Mm. The Gulf of Tonkin was a freaking lie, right? Straight mm. up. And 9-11 was not a lie, right? George Bush did not do, you know, the CIA did not, did not carry out 9-11. Al-Qaeda did, and they claimed it, and they were in Afghanistan. And the entire world understood the moral and the legal and the strategic imperative of going to getting going in and getting those guys. And I think the follow-on logic was that though that Al-Qaeda was in, in Afghanistan because it was a failed state and they could sort of seek refuge there and sort of pay their way into the good graces of the Taliban. And so if you if you if you stabilize that country, so it's not another Somalia, if you stabilize it and make it a, a, a functioning country, then you know, it's a perfect country to sort of hide out if you're Al-Qaeda. It's a perfect country to have as a safe haven. You know, if you if you normalize that country and bringing in to, bring it into the community of nations, then it can't be used in that fashion in the future. And so there there was some sound thinking there. I, I'm not sure I would disagree with it. It's just, I again, I didn't count on the unbelievable incompetence of our leadership, both Republican and Democrat. You mentioned Somalia. That was going to be next, my next question. I remember reading in uh, Mark Bowden's great book, Black Hawk Down, at the very end of it, he's citing an um, an anonymous political, like an ambassador or senator. And the guy's point was, we have why are we there? It has no value to us. That's why they pulled out. And that's why ultimately it went the way it did. Uh, is, is Afghanistan now Somalia for that matter for us? Well, I mean, it could easily be say that Afghanistan had no value for us before right. 9-11, right. except that we lost 3,000 civilians because <laughs> something was brewing there that couldn't ha couldn't have brewed in France or in England or whatever. It had to be a stateless, I don't know, a failed state like Afghanistan or Somalia. And and Afghanistan is like perfectly suited to this sort of thing. So um, I, I, uh, I, you know, there's nothing in it for us. I mean, our intervention in Somalia... You know, initially we went we went in there to mit try to mitigate the famine, mm -hmm. and yeah. right, and we and it worked, right? I mean, we saved millions of lives, hundreds of thousands, whatever. We saved an enormous number of lives in Somalia, and uh, what didn't work was we had a helicopter shot down and lost, lost a bunch of people. But but it sort of shows you our level of sensitivity to casualties that that incident constitutes a defeat in war. Right. Like the loss of one helicopter and some soldiers. I mean, I'm speaking strictly in tactical yeah. terms now, yeah. not human terms. Right. Those soldiers were people. They're missed by their families. Like, I mean, of course. But we're talking about, you know, the definition of a failed war. Downing one helicopter really, if you start using that as a definition of a failed war, you're going to your nation's going to have some troubles. Right. Like and I mean, we look at Russia going into this sort of like meat grinder of Ukraine and never blinking. I mean, that's not a nice way to go either. But, but I, you know, I guess my point would be, and I'm taking, I'm parroting the point of a, of a, uh, of a, of a military commander who was commenting on, on Somalia. The point would be that in a lot of ways, the strategic objectives of that mission succeeded. I mean, we mitigated the famine for quite a long time and, um, now it's a failed state, but we didn't go in there to stabilize. I mean, the, the mission in Somalia was to feed people. And according to this military commander, they succeeded in that. Uh, 
In terms of what we did in Afghanistan and the, the improvements that we might have been able to make, is that all gone now? Are they as vulnerable to terrorist presence uh, as they as it was, say, in 2000? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure that the Taliban needs to do this again with another terror terrorist group. I mean, if Al Qaeda approaches them again, I mean, it didn't go right. I mean, they were out of power for 20 years. Right. And they took enormous casualties and their senior leadership was decimated. And I, I don't know, why would you re-up for that? I'm, you know, I'm guessing that as long as they can get some kind of military and economic financial support from allies like Pakistan, that, that, that they, they probably don't need that kind of problem in their midst. Because if, if, again, if, a, if an extremist group takes root in Afghanistan and attacks the United States or another country, they know for a fact that, that the Western powers are not scared of going in and getting those guys, right? Like they, they've already experienced that. I think they were counting on the fact that the Americans wouldn't want to get sort of messed up in a, in a war in, you know, land war in Asia. I think they were counting on that. I think it probably shocked them when America, when the United States didn't blink, like we went straight in there as fast as we could. I think that really shocked them. In terms of what the improvements, it's it seemed like women there uh, with American military presence in place were enjoying certain benefits to their lifestyles that that previously didn't exist. Um, without the Taliban in, in, in place, now yeah. they are. Are all those? Is that all gone now? Are they back to square one, so to speak? You know, I haven't. I, you know, yeah. obviously, I haven't been there. And you know, keep in mind that those those rights, those important rights enjoyed by women in Afghanistan, you know, were there in urban centers in the seventies, and then the the Soviets disrupted the Soviet invasion disrupted that, and then were there again while the United States was there in urban centers not in the hinterlands, right? Those are very, very traditional. So, you know, the Taliban Taliban rules and strictures were just mirrored the, the Pashtun, mostly Pashtun society, those of Pashtun society. So it really was the urban centers where women could go to school and enjoyed these other, all these other rights and privileges. Um, right now, I, you know, I, I mean, just from what I read in the news, it's been rolled back, but uh, you know, you don't hear many reports of these awful public executions and things like that. I think there's been one that I read about. So it seems like they might have sort of like they might be taking a slightly softer approach to all that for probably completely for PR reasons. Uh, a few years ago, you wrote that post-traumatic stress disorder among soldiers was as bad as it's ever been. I think this is in 2015 or 16. Do you think that what soldiers are experiencing now uh, and when they come home is any different than what previous generations of our American military went through? Or are we just aware of it now because there's language and definition and treatment for this? I mean, it's a super complex question. I mean, so, you know, first of all, PTSD refers, the T refers to trauma. So if you were not in combat, you were not traumatized, right? And most of the U.S. military was not in combat. I mean, the largest percentage that I've heard of our fighting force that's actually in combat is about one third, one out of three, right? But what was interesting is that a lot of soldiers coming back from overseas reported real psychological struggles coming back. And what occurred to me, and I write about this in my book, Tribe, is that the trauma 
for 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 soldiers who were not shot at, who were not shooting people, or not shot at, which is the majority of American soldiers, that the real difficulty in coming back is losing the close communal connection of a like highly functioning military unit, like a platoon, right? I mean, you could be at a rear base, or you could be on the on the flight deck of a of an aircraft carrier, and be you know, part of an incredibly intense small group of people that are doing something vital and that every person is needed. And, you know, that that sort of arrangement replicates our evolutionary past very, very closely. And it's hard to give it up. Peace Corps volunteers have an almost identical depression rate when they come home as as uh, American veterans, about one in four. So it seems to be giving up communal a communal existence with people that you care about and are prepared to makes great sacrifices for that that is the hardship in addition there's the trauma that actual combat veterans suffer but the you know the 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 va doesn't make that distinction basically if you were overseas and you come back and have psychological troubles it's just called ptsd and so the rate is enormously high but i think they're actually failing to make a crucial distinction and it would it puts these soldiers in this awkward position of having to sort of like embroider or invent uh uh horror you know trauma that didn't quite happen like okay a mortar a mortar hit at the other side of the air base from you you weren't that's not really trauma i'm sorry you know that that's an artifact of war but but that's not deep trauma the way the diagnosis would suggest you don't want soldiers having to amp that up in order to explain the very real psychological struggles they're having when you explain those struggles in terms of loss of community all of a sudden, you don't need the, the mortar round that landed a mile away to explain your troubles. They're perfectly well explained by the loss of community connection that the, that leaving the military represents. Um, you know, I would say that in previous generation, I mean, American society has become more and more automated, more and more alienated, more and more fractured, more and more isolated, you know, with every generation. So I'm guessing that World War II veterans and Korean War and even Vietnam you know, that they they suffered some of this less because the society was a little bit more cohesive. I mean, my wife was the youngest of 12 children. Her father fought in World War II. So he was quite old when she was born. Her father fought in World War II. He came back to his neighborhood in the Midwest, in the city in the Midwest, and all six of his brothers had fought in the war and lived within a few blocks of him. That's wow. probably no longer the, the case very often in this country. So, of course, that guy was traumatized. He spent the whole war on foot, slogging and in the infantry, slogging through Europe as a lieutenant and a captain. Imagine the levels of trauma. He came back and he you know, functioned quite well, um, he, uh, I think partly because he came back to a community of, uh, you know, of fellow sufferers and, you know, whatever. Like it was a it was a good old fashioned American community in the 1940s. And he, you know, he went right to right back to work in the community. So we basically were at war for 20 years, give or take. Yeah. Uh, you have spoken about the massive complex that is the United States military machine. What is the state of it now? It seems like it is so much different than it was in 2000 because of technology. And now it seems like we don't have that. We don't have that focus that we did or it had yeah. rather for 20 years. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing that they learned at the, maybe not at the strategic, unfortunately, but certainly at the tactical level, the U.S. military learned incredible lessons about fighting a 
an insurgency in difficult terrain where even air power is sort of negated by the circumstances of the war. And, and so, you know, now there are <coughs> there are um, people within the U.S. military and also retired who are um, in Ukraine advising and helping and training the Ukrainian military to fight the Russians. They're, uh, clearly, they're taking the lessons learned in Iraq and Afghanistan, taking them to Ukraine. It's clearly working extremely well. So I'm guessing what the U.S. military is focused on right now is um, is implementing those lessons learned into the next generation generations of American fighters, because you you know we didn't see 9/11 coming, although arguably we should have, but we didn't see it coming, and we now know that everything can change overnight. Like we now know that. So yeah, is there ever really a peacetime army? Yeah, yeah, until maybe tomorrow morning, right? <laughs> And then yeah. suddenly it's not. And so they, I think they sort of know that. Uh, your most recent book, well, I think it's your most recent book, uh, Freedom. You and I had, uh, when I interviewed you in Dallas, you were on the process of doing it where you, uh, for for, re for listeners and viewers of this, Sebastian and friends walk around the United States and explore what the idea of what freedom really is. And it's, it's freedom as free as people think they are. When you read your book, you understand that you are tethered to things that make you less free. Um, what prompted you to, to do this project? Because it was so outside of anything that I'd certainly ever seen you try before. Yeah, I mean, so it was, the book was sort of had two parts. I mean, one was a sort of study of underdog, uh, how underdog groups could defeat greater powers, right? So the Montenegrins defeating the Ottomans, the, the Apache outrunning the U.S. cavalry for 300 years, uh, <laughs> you know, et cetera, uh, the Spanish and then the Americans. Um, the, the Irish uh, throwing out British rule in Ireland after the 1916, failed 1916 uprising, but eventually it worked. So I looked at underdog groups that were able to um, create their own freedom from an oppressor, right? And if smaller groups can't couldn't defeat larger groups, there would be no freedom in the world. The world would be composed of fascist megastates, but it's not. And um, so um, hold on one second. Honey, I'll be done in six minutes. All right. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I saw. I see the timer. See the right time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, so that's sort of the so, sort of the more investigative part of the book. The other part, as you say, is this trek that I did. So, me and two guys I knew in Afghanistan, and then another guy, a combat photographer, um, a Spanish guy named Guillermo. We walked along the railroad lines from Washington D.C to Philadelphia, then we decided to turn west and went to Pittsburgh. We walked along the railroad lines because there are these sort of strips of no man's land where you can sort of do whatever you want. We were sleeping under bridges and abandoned buildings and getting our water out of creeks and cooking over fires, dodging the police. Of course, the whole <laughs> thing was illegal, so we needed a certain amount of like tactical awareness and ability to pull this off. And we encountered America in this very sort of raw way. And we would walk through t towns you know, and go buy food and then go back out onto the railroad lines. And and uh, and we just sort of talked to people about America. And the idea came to me when I was on the Amtrak going from New York to D.C. once. And I was looking out the window and I said to Tim, the guy that I made Restrepo with, I was like, damn, we could walk along this entire thing. Like it's told no man's land along these railroad lines. We could walk this entire thing. And uh, I called it high-speed vagrancy. We could be high-speed <laughs> vagrants. So we carried everything we needed. We moved 10, 15, 20 miles a day. We stayed out of reach of the cops. 
what you know, at one point they were looking for us with a helicopter and they couldn't get us. So I, I you know, that's about as close to Taliban as I'm ever going to feel. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, so, and then Tim got himself killed in Libya and I'm like, oh no, like what am I, 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 I want to do this trip. Maybe the trip will be a way of sort of processing his death and the fact that I'm never going back to combat again. I was, I went with a couple of guys that themselves said they were not going back to combat again either. Although two of them lied about it and did go back to combat. <laughs> That's how strong the allure is. But, um, at any rate, that, that that was those were the sort of like clumsy beginnings of this idea, and we did it over the course of a year. Uh, we did st- uh, stretches of like fifty to one hundred miles. Uh, we wanted to walk in every season, um, and uh, so over the course of you know we would pick up where we left off and we just keep going, and we'd spend a week or ten days at a time out on the lines and then go home. I'll ask two more questions. There's uh, people have asked me sometimes what's good writing, and I've kind of thought. If you can remember it, it's probably pretty good. And yep. uh, that's just a, a generality. And you have written a few sentences that I still remember. Uh, the, your description of Dan Stack's bar in Massachusetts and in, uh, in, in, in that, in that book, uh, certainly passages from um, uh, the, the Perfect Storm. But there was a line in Freedom near the end of it. And, and your ending of, of War about the woman, about the mother who's, yeah. You know, grieving the loss of her son with the president, and there wasn't a damn thing she could, any, he could do about it. That one stuck. But there's a line at the end of Freedom where you talk about, I've got to get back to my life. And it really stuck with me. I have no idea why. Well, when you talked about doing this journey and you realized, I got to get home, what did you yeah. mean? Well, I, you know, home was a divorce. I mean, I was in the middle of a divorce, and it was a friendly divorce. Uh, and but still I'm a divorce, still, but still a divorce. Enormously yeah. sad time. I mean, it's the failure of a great enterprise, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's enormously sad, even if you stay friends with your with your ex, and which I was. Um, and I, you know, one of the the I called it the last patrol. This trek that we took. One of the points of it was to sort of buy me a little space, so that I could sort of process this divorce. And and eventually, I realized like buying space and processing can eventually turn into just straight up avoidance. And <laughs> it was, it was time to, it was time to sort of go home and uh, start the next chapter of my life. And as long as I was out there on the railroad lines and counting on that as a kind of buffer between me and my very, very sad feelings, you know, as long as I was doing that, I wasn't like, I wasn't going to move on. And so I, you know, I realized it was time to, it's a very, very powerful thing. You have to know when, you have to know the things that you have to know the powerful things that you should do in your life. And then you also have to know when they've run their course and it's time to stop them. And well, I, I'm going to cut you off real quick because yeah. I'm got a minute and a half. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's next for you? Well, I, um, I'll try to say this in a minute, and 19 seconds. Okay. I, <laughs> I, I, I had an undiagnosed aneurysm in my pancreatic artery. Oh no. Uh, and it ruptured two years ago. And it's a almost always fatal occurrence. And I managed to, I hung on for 90 minutes till they got me to the hospital and they managed wow. to save me. Um, I lost half my blood into my abdomen. I mean, this is a wow. real widow maker. And, um, you know, it was just a random freak event. Like it was not a health, I didn't have a health problem. I didn't, I just like, I'm a fit, healthy person. That's why I survived actually. But my, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in anything. And I'm an anti-mystic and I, you know, whatever, show me the data. Right. And, and, as I was dying, my dead father appeared above me to to welcome me. 
And he was like, it's okay. It's going to be all right. You can come with me. It's okay. He was trying to calm me down. I was getting pulled into this black pit underneath me. And there was my father saying, it's okay. It's all right. You can come with me. His hands were open like that. And I said, and I was still conscious. I said to the doctor, I'm going, you gotta, you gotta, I'm going right now. Like you gotta hurry. I'm leaving. And he was working on putting a line into my jugular to get enough blood into me to save my life. And he was doing in the middle of doing that. I was like, you got, you got to hurry. Cause I'm going. So I'm writing a book called pulse about that experience and about, and, 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 sort of trying to explain in rational terms what happened to me. My dad was a physicist. I want to write a book that he would respect about what the hell he was doing there. Have you come up with an answer at all? Well, I mean, you know, I'm not the first person to inquire about what are called NDEs, near-death experiences. Right. What happened to me, and this is what's odd about it, what happened to me is extremely common. And that um, people, um, uh, you know, people have, people who are on the threshold of death don't have wildly different experiences. They all have sort of basically the same set of experiences, which would, which would sort of argue for there being something going on that we don't understand rather than just, you know, you give LSD to a bunch of people and they all have different hallucinations. <laughs> you make a bunch of people almost die. They all have basically the same hallucination. So what is that? And so the the explanations run from, uh, it's a just a uh, artifact of our neurochemistry when our blood oxygen is low, blah blah blah. You know, endogenous some endogenous hallucinogens that are in our you know in our brains that get triggered. Um, uh, sort of runs from that all the way to uh, maybe some of the more out there theories of of, of quantum physics explain a post death reality that we don't understand. So that, in other words, you that, that when you die, there is some reality that continues, that your existence continues in some dimension that your existence continues in. We just don't understand it. And it, it intersects with our experience in these in sort of occasional ways. And, and particularly when you die and, you know, total theory, right. But it's a theory. So I'm trying to, um, I, I'm sort of just looking at all the different theories I'm looking at shamanism, for example. I mean, all the different theories that involve these sort of trends, these sort of these threshold experiences to see if there's anything in any of these bodies of work, in any of this research that could help illuminate what happened to me. You said you're an atheist. Did a near-death experience change your attitude towards religion and that that part of your philosophy? You know, it didn't. I mean, if I'd seen God, it might have, but I didn't see God. I saw my dad. And so what it, to me, you know, it might, um, it made me willing, made me willing to admit that it's possible. I, in my, dis, in my dismissal of mysticism, that it made me admit that I might, I might not know everything that the, that the universe in physical terms, right. That in, 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 in terms of the, like the laws of physics, and the, and the atoms, the atomic particles that we're made up of, that in physical terms, the universe might operate in ways that we don't understand, and that would include a post-death reality. And it finally came to me that it's it's extremely unlikely that there's, quote, life after death, that there's a post-death existence. It's extremely unlikely to the point of being sort of preposterous. But this universe itself was extremely unlikely to exist, to the point of being preposterous. So existence itself 
probably is not less unlikely than a post-death existence. They're both pr totally preposterous propositions. So it made it made me sort of um, willing to open my mind that there might be something that we don't yet understand that involves some existence that continues after our, our what we call our death. When might this be out? Um, well, I've been, what happened to me was absolutely terrifying. It was the scariest oh, thing imagine. that's ever, yeah, way scarier than combat. And it had dramatic <clears throat> effects psychologically for me that were way more severe than anything I had from combat. Um, as a result, I'm quite avoidant of it. And uh, it's, you know, like writer's block is bad enough as it is. And this is like a supercharged version of it because the whole topic is extremely unpleasant to me. So I've been successfully avoiding working on it for like a, <laughs> a, a year. So uh, I, I've told myself after, in, the, in the new year, I really must get, you know, like get to it, get to it, right? <laughs> Sit down and start um, stopping a baby about it. So, you know, I'm guessing it might come out in what are we about to turn in the, in the spring of 24. I can't wait to see it. Uh, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for uh, for doing this. I, I'm such a fan of yours, and it means so much to me that you you took the time to not only do it, but to come back and finish up that story. Yeah. I, I had no idea that you suffered that near-death experience. I'm so glad you're still with us. You've done such great work for so long, and I know you mean a lot to so many people uh, who aren't in necessarily your circle of friends. And uh, I'm really glad you're in good health, Sebastian. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Reach out anytime. Okay. Thanks a lot. Have a good holiday. Yeah, take care. Take yeah. care. Bye.